0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 5 of Greatest Stories Under Told, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. This fourth installment is entitled, Jonah is Angry That God Spared Nineveh, and all scripture is taken from the New International Version. What group of people really gets under your skin? Who makes you mad? Maybe it's the Chinese officials that covered up COVID-19, or radical leftists that burn down our cities and encourage violence. Or maybe it's ISIS, or communists, or illegal immigrants, or people that like and defend our president, or people that dislike and attack our president. All of us, though, struggle at times with anger against some other group that we think hasn't done things exactly right. So come with me today to about 767 BC. This is the story of Jonah. Jonah's name means dove. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel after they split in two, and there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. His book was probably written somewhere around 760 B.C., and he's mentioned in one other place in the Bible besides the book that bears his name, 2 Kings 14, 23-25. He was from a town that wasn't too far from Nazareth called Gath-Hefer. Jonah was called by God to go to the capital of Assyria, the city of Nineveh, and preach against it. The archaeological dig site of Nineveh is not very far from the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. Assyrian kings were known for their horrible violence, and in fact, there is an inscription from a temple in the city of Nimrod that records the fate of some leaders of the city of Suru, which was on the Euphrates River, who rebelled from and were reconquered by the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. This is what that inscription says. I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Can you imagine such wickedness and cruelty? Another description of another conquest is even worse. It says, In strife and conflict I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one pile of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. So when Jonah got the message that he was to preach to Nineveh about God's anger at their sin, he wasn't very happy. Nineveh was approximately 550 miles from where he lived, and that would be not too different from being told to walk from Tulsa to Houston. It would probably have taken a month to get there if you were making about 20 miles or so a day, and if you were walking six days a week, quite the task. And so Jonah, instead of doing what God asked him to do, went to Joppa, which was his seaport right on the Mediterranean, and sailed west towards Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain, which would have been about 2,500 miles had he made it. God asks him to go northeast, 550 miles, and instead he Heads out west. You probably remember the story. God sent a terrible storm which threatened to sink the boat, and it scared the mariners so bad that they all began to call on their gods for protection, sleep in the bottom of the boat. And so someone went down and got him and said, Call on your God. What are you doing? We need to be delivered from this terrible storm. Then they decided to cast lots to see whose fault it was that this storm had occurred. The Lord allowed the lot to fall on Jonah, and the people asked him who he was and where he was from. So he explained that he worshiped the God of Israel that had created the land and the sea, and that it was really because of God's displeasure at him that this storm had happened. So the people said, well, what should we do then? to you, if we're going to be saved from this. And he told them to cast him overboard. They didn't want to do that. And they tried harder and harder to row the boat back to shore, but it was a lost cause. So they prayed to the God of Israel and asked him not to hold them accountable for Jonah's death. And they also uh, made vows to him and offered sacrifices, but they did throw him overboard And I'm sure he expected that he would drown and die, but instead he was swallowed by some sort of a large fish or whale, and he was inside that beast alive for three days and three nights. He eventually repented, and the Lord caused the fish to spit him out on the bank, and he was eventually able to collect himself, get and somehow make his way to the city of Nineveh, he really did go into this great city that was about seven miles on the perimeter and uh, over 1,700 acres total and began to preach, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And instead of arresting him or killing him on the spot, those wicked Ninevites actually listened and the king called for a fast. He even wanted the animals to fast. The people dressed in sackcloth, and they cried out to God, and he heard them and decided not to destroy them after all. But that's not the main focus of what we're talking about today. We go to Jonah chapter 4 after all this has happened, and look at Jonah's attitude about God's great mercy at the- Ninevites' repentance. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live.'" But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Maybe you recall that the King James Version describes this plant as a gourd, and gourds do have very broad leaves. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now that's the second time in this chapter that he has asked a question that started out, is it right for you to be angry? He wants Jonah to think about his attitude But the chapter goes on. It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than a 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? That's how the book ends. This very important question, helping people to understand that the God of the Old Testament, like the God of the New, loves people and is sorry when they sin and doesn't want to bring judgment on them if they will repent. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? If you go on to Ezekiel 18.30b-32, to it says, Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart. And a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Do you have an idea that God is hanging sinful people over hell by a string, ready at any moment to cut that string, and then laugh as they go into eternity lost? No. God wants everyone to come to repentance. And that's real easy to nod your head to until you remember that when we say everyone, we mean ISIS, we mean communists, we mean people that don't agree with us politically, and people whose skin is a different color from ours. God wants all to come to Christ. Ezekiel 33.11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? 2 Peter 3 9, the New Testament, echoes the same thing. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, we know that God is a God of justice, and he does have a limit. And a hundred years later, when Nineveh fell back into the very same sin, he sent the prophet Nahum to declare to them that they would be destroyed, and they were. But God was so slow to resort to that judgment because he saw in them, in the generation in which Jonah lived, people that would turn and people who would express sorrow for sin and people who would follow him if they were told to. That reminds me of a very important story that Corey Ten Boom wrote in her follow-up to the best-selling The Hiding Place. Perhaps you recall that she was Dutch and lived during World War II. She and her widowed father and her unmarried sister hid Jews during the time when Germany was taking over Holland and rounding up all of the Jews and sending them to concentration camps. And so the three of them were also eventually arrested, and sent to concentration camps. Her father, who was quite elderly, only lasted a couple of weeks, and her sister later died in the prison as well. But she was released by a clerical error just a couple of weeks before all the women her age were gassed to death. When the war was over, she began to be asked to speak to various church groups and she ended up having a worldwide ministry and writing the best-selling book, The Hiding Place. But after that, she wrote a book called Tramp for the Lord, and in chapter 7 of Tramp for the Lord, a chapter entitled Love Your Enemy, she explains something that happened when she encountered one of the soldiers from the concentration camp at a church. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrück, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do— For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that, too. Forgiveness is an act of the will— And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. "'I forgive you, brother,' I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, but even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Romans 5, 5, quote, Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. That testimony in chapter 7 spoke so powerfully to me. We look back And we see that Jonah had rebelled against God and refused to do what God had asked him to do. God said, go to the northeast and preach to Nineveh. And he headed out west. He was in the wrong and should have been judged. But when he, in repentance, cried out to God, God saved him. But then when he went to Nineveh, and told those people God's message, that they were in the wrong and deserved judgment, they too called on that same God who had created them and asked for his forgiveness. And when God granted it to them, Jonah was angry. And so we see that when we are angry at others, whether it's an individual in the family or someone in the neighborhood or at work, or someone in the news that we have grown to despise, someone in politics, or groups of people, races of people, or nations of people, or people with religious views, and we allow ourselves to be so angry and just wish that they would be destroyed and not want them to come to God, we have completely misunderstood the gospel and we have failed to understand that we are the same as they. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23 says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If God can have compassion on the lost, then how could I, who was once lost and experienced this great compassion, not also feel it for others and show it as well? If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along.